Church. Luke 2.52, our text from last Wednesday. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You can be seated. I just want to welcome all of our children. We have chips, but not every Wednesday night. And because I'm going to deal with uh, parenting adolescents, I'll be as discreet as possible in some of the things I describe, and parents can translate and fill in the blanks. How's that? From last week, I just want to do a very quick review. I think you know I don't like long reviews. Let's get to the new stuff. What a child's need is for character development. Parents need to nurture the development of godly character in their children's lives, starting when they're very, very young. The Bible says, who do you make knowledge known to? Those that are weaned. You do it very early. Children are eager for leadership. Uh, they're characterized by childish irresponsibility. Uh, sometimes it is willful disobedience. You should try to know the difference, and you treat them differently. I believe that parenting style for young children should be authoritarian. Lots of strong leadership, direction, correction, who's the boss, who's not, and make sure that that's established early on. Remember, the most dangerous person in the world is a person not in, under authority. In the Old Testament, if there was a rebellious son that had been disciplined and done everything they could, they were to bring that son to the elders and stone that person to death to put rebellion out of Israel. I'm not suggesting that, although it may have crossed your mind a time or two. That's not the way we do it now. But, you know, God took rebellion very seriously in his word. So we should demonstrate strong, loving discipline. It should be based on the infraction, not your emotion. It should, uh, it's not all about spanking. I talked about that last week. But when it's time to spank, you need to have a plan for it. It should be measured, rational. I didn't say all this last week. It should be firm. It should be convincing to the child. Amen. And I know that we should count our blessings, but I asked you to reconsider counting. One, two, three, three, two, one. Uh, maybe there's a time for that, maybe not. I uh, spoke at a men's conference Friday in Virginia and came home Saturday, and there was a lady police officer standing at the crosswalk directing traffic, and uh, a car pulled up in the crosswalk, stopped, opened the hatch. They were loading up, and she went over to them and was yelling and telling them to move out of the way. And with my own ears, I heard her say, one, two, three, four, five. And she never wrote a ticket. They pulled off, rode off into the sunset. But I, I thought that was pretty interesting. I do encourage you to be considerate when your children are engaged in play. Don't just abruptly stop them. They may, they may not understand that. So that's where you do give a warning. We should instill values. That never ends. Values are formed by reward and punishment or approval and disapproval. I didn't get too, too deep into this last week. Values are formed by unconscious imitation, where your children grow up imitating you. You imitate who you admire. And then by reflective thinking. That's how prodigals can come to themselves and change who they are. You have a choice to change and thank God that people do change for good. We should provide leadership 
by example for our children. We should teach incentives by, excuse me, teach responsibility through incentives. And I close by referring to the passage that children are a blessing from the Lord. We are stewards of their development. Now, let's talk about the teenage years, uh, beginning with the onset of puberty. We know that that starts differently for different people. But a young person's nature and need, I want to just let you think about the word transition. They are transitioning from not one gender to another, but from childhood to adulthood. That word, you know, words. It's a special season in life, I believe. Uh, One writer, and I will give you just a quick context. You know, right out of Bible college, I became a youth pastor. 1978. There were almost no books. I did not know anyone who was a youth pastor. And I was trying to figure it out. And then they asked me to teach youth ministries at the Bible College, Jackson College of Ministries. So I found everything I could. I was trying to learn and I was trying to teach. So the best book I found, Lawrence O. Richards, he said, adolescence is the period of time during which a person makes a transition from childhood to adulthood and begins when children begin to show signs of puberty, continues till they have reached their full height, approximately reached full mental growth as measured by intelligence tests. Reproductive nature is mature, a little code there, includes the years from about 11 or 12 into the early 20s. And I know that in 2022, there's a lot of people that should be on their own that are living with their parents. And that's another issue that, I'm not really going to address tonight. There Maybe there's a reason for that. So growing out of childhood, the Apostle Paul said, I want you to see this verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 11. I really don't have time to address this verse, but it is a fascinating verse to me. Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about when we'll know, you know, no longer in part. But Paul said, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child. So he talked like a kid. He understood with an infantile mind. I thought as a child, children think a certain way. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now again, his point is not to teach about developmental psychology. He's talking about changing and growing up and maturing. But on the way there, he tells us that when he was a kid, when he was a child, He spoke, understood, and thought like a child. So we should understand how children speak, think, and act, right? And then we need to know as children are changing from childhood into adulthood, this process of about a decade, right? Something like that, that is not instant. Uh, But change, I think, is probably the most uh, powerful word to me in this. Now, the Bible give some insights about what young people, what teenagers may deal with and young people who are not yet married. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, within the call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Psalm 119.9, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. His way should be cleansed, and the word of God is powerful for a young man to cleanse his way. 
I love that verse. Ecclesiastes 11.9. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. And walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. They are passing. They're temporary. You can think that what you do there, the sowing of wild oats, is never going to produce a harvest. But it will. And Solomon warns in Ecclesiastes. We need to realize that attitudes are not innocent. That they grow up. And unless they are checked, repented of, and worked on, that they're not going to go away. Just because you get older, time and physical maturation does not make you mature emotionally, spiritually, it doesn't change your attitudes. And there's a verse that I preached to young people about back in the day, about Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Jeremiah 22, 21. The Lord said, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. He took the words of God, cut it with a pen knife and threw it in the fire on the hearth, that's what he did. Jeremiah doesn't describe that here. But then Jeremiah said, this has been your manner from your youth, that you did not obey my voice. This didn't just start when you turned 21. It didn't start when you became a king. It started when you were a young person, that you started saying no to God. And it continues into your adulthood. So that verse should help us realize we have to deal with our attitudes and the attitudes of our children. But I believe that young people desire spiritual experience. They desire experience in general. Adolescence has been called the experiential or experimental phase of life. Young people often are searching for the boundaries of their abilities and plumbing the depths of their emotions. They want to see how far they can push the limits, not always in an evil way, but in general. And I believe since they want experience, we should give them great experiences, good experiences. So that's why you've heard me say, and I know that not everybody has kids. You may hear me make the, give that fine print often. Bring them to crowd services. It's happening right now. Get them involved in youth activities, youth camps. North American Youth Congress will be next year. Youth retreats, youth events. And I'm just gonna, gonna you know, toot my horn a minute, but I have 27 years of experience as a pastor here and 44 years of ministry experience that is remarkable in showing how being connected that I preached about August 28th is so vital to your children's souls. I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly, and even though it may take a commitment and somewhat, I don't like to use the word sacrifice, after Calvary, that bothers me if I say I made a sacrifice, but anyway, but whatever it takes, they need to be involved. They need to experience God for themselves. 
There's an old thing I read and I preached about again in my youth days that God has no grandchildren. You can be a grandchild of Pentecost, third or fourth generation, but every generation has to find God for themselves. They have to find an altar, make commitments. They're going to wrestle with holiness standards, apostolic identity, doctrine. They've got to wrestle them their way through that, but they've got to experience God, have encounters with God where God can speak to them and there can be spiritual formation. If they are shy, work with them. Don't let that be an excuse to not go to chips or crowd or hyphen or those crossover. Let those leaders know, our youth pastor, whomever, so they can help them grow out of it. You should not, you be careful about sympathizing with your teenage child or any child who desires to shy away. That's not going to help them. They don't want to go to that class or the crowd or whatever. If your child feels like they don't belong, guess what? So do most of the other kids who are there. At some time or another, they feel disenfranchised. They feel like they don't fit in. They feel like they're the odd person out. Most everyone feels like that at some time in their life. And some young people, some teenagers, children of whatever age, they feel like that a lot. It may be perceived or it may be real. They may have people that are really mistreating them and not including them. They may have a nature that is not the easiest to embrace and befriend. But if that's the way it is, we should do our best as a church to love everybody, accept everybody, and include everybody. But I've been around long enough that some people get excluded, not invited to something, and they're going to feel that. But if you coddle that, if you reinforce that, even though it may be true, it's not going to help them. To be rejected hurts terribly. And most of us have experienced some measure of rejection in our lives at one time or another. I'm not trying to minimize being rejected or feeling left out that kids don't fit in. It can be a crushing experience. But let's think about how can we help this? What positive things can we do to help them adjust, find a friend, and fit in? Or what about befriending someone else who also doesn't have a friend? So blaming others doesn't help, even if there's reasons uh, that they feel marginalized. We want to create a culture of loving acceptance, but people are people are people, and sometimes we struggle with accepting people who are rejected in other places. Now, the next thing I want to talk about with this age of this season of life is a developing mind, the onset set of an intelligent why. Now, I know kids ask why from early on, but the why a teenager asks is, is a different why very often. During adolescence, children make the transition from an infantile conscience or mind, which best understands concrete ideas, to a more mature mind that can perceive abstract thought and ideas. They can think now in ideas. Now, I'm not a child psychologist. I will never pretend to be something that I'm not. But I do understand enough about this to know that there's changes taking place 
And so they're now questioning things. They're questioning you. They might be questioning the church or the Bible or the existence of God. Don't panic, but provide positive help. David Rokup in a youth ministries book said for the first time, they're able to deal with abstracts, to reason about the future, to understand complex systems of thought, to formulate philosophies and to struggle with contradictions. I've learned that especially in the teenage years, doesn't have to start there, doesn't have to end there, but they're quick to spot the flaws in laws, in people, in institutions, and they often perceive inconsistencies as hypocrisy. And everybody in this room has some amount of inconsistency in your life, unless you're Jesus and he's here by spirit but not in body, as far as I know. And teenagers are like professional flaw identifiers. They can find it and then call you out on it at times or the church or whatever. That's part of it. And I don't think that's the time to revert back. I'll talk about parenting style here. Revert back to just slamming the Bible down and your fist down and saying, I'm the boss, I'm the parent. This is a time to try to help them figure out truth and right and wrong and help them understand that people are not perfect, but just because they have inconsistencies does not mean that they are hypocritical. Some teenagers can be idealistic, argumentative, and incredibly self-conscious. One of the reasons they're self-conscious is because of the physical changes that are taking place in their bodies, in boys and girls. Every adult in this room knows what I'm talking about. We've all experienced that transition, the onset of puberty, growing through our teenage years into early adulthood, adulthood, and all the seasons of life. But they've never gone through that. They have not, they don't have the perspective to look back and realize what's going on in their body, in their emotions, in their mind. So remember that what you see changing physiologically, outwardly, is really just kind of an indicator of a lot of other things that are changing in their life. What's really tra tragic is when you have a child, a teenager, in early adolescence with the parent going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. So there are changes taking place in their bodies, mind, and emotions. Physical growth, you know, when a boy's voice starts changing, girl, girls developing into womanhood, reproductive processes, and at times there can be awkwardness from you know, rapid growth, that never happened in our family, but I've heard about it, read about it, seen it happen to other people. <laughs> you know, not a personal experience. It can be that awkwardness. And then usually an overattention to the physical brought on like a new awareness of this changing body. There can be dermatological disorders. My, one of my really close friends, Rocky and I, we talked about our experiences of going to the dermatologist, the dreaded Dr. Halprin, who was trying to help us deal with all the pimples on our face that we were struggling with and thought that life had ended at 16 or something like that. I want to pause to say this. One of the things that really helped me is not to remember what happened, 
when I was a teenager, but how I felt when it happened. Because we do need a sympathy that grows from knowing that the teenage years is, a, is I believe, a very special time of life. And we need understanding and wisdom to help our children, grandchildren, people that we work with, grow through this. So this is a time to have continuing conversations about their development. And I'll say it like that and not all the words that are in my notes. So more than just the talk, there should probably be a series of conversations. Affirm their God-given genetic identity, sexual identity. Listen, but don't affirm gender dysphoria. That's when a person is distressed about their assigned gender. Because this could be common in early adolescence. Affirm their God-given gender. If you want resources, there are a lot, but I would point you there to focus on the family. And I put the link in my notes on the parenting, a biblical perspective on transgender identity, a primer for parents and strugglers. Focus on the family. Gender questions is another topic can be caused by, you know, uh, I don't like to be too definitive here, but an absent father, a smother mother, a sexual abuse experience, experimentation with other friends, the absence of a strong role model in their gender. So there's a lot going on in early adolescence and later adolescence, but especially what is now middle school that for me was junior high. Now, there's another thing that takes place, and it is a peer group identity. I remember walking through a mall with my mom and gradually drifting away from where we were walking beside my mom. I love my mom, but she was my mom. And I looked back and thought, why did I do that? I, I love my mom, but I didn't really want to walk through the mall with my mom that day. I don't know if my mom knew it, but my mom was pretty sharp. You know, in our culture, if you think about this, go back 150 years or more before the Industrial Revolution. That's a while, right? But a lot of small communities, a lot of one-room schoolhouses, a lot of age group integration, but then moved to cities, population explosions, and now there's a bunch of first graders together, second, third, fourth. Now there is a junior high. Now there is a middle school. Now there is a high school. My high school, 10 through 12, over 4,000 students, like 950 people in my graduating class. 950 people my same age with the same struggles, the same problems, and we're all together. So now we have a peer group. When if you lived on a farm, 20 miles from everybody else, there was not that same peer association like there was later, and it's been this way for many, many years. But for me, this is just my personal testimony, and I know it's now middle school, not junior high. 12 years old, seventh grade, goes down for me as the most difficult year of my life because all my friends from elementary school suddenly became evil over the summer. The words they used, the jokes they told, the stories, asking me why I didn't cuss like they cussed, the pressure. I remember standing in 
the cafeteria at Henry H. Filer Junior High School when my friends asked me why I didn't cuss. And I felt like a giant helicopter police spotlight was shining down on me. And I should have started quoting scripture and preaching to them, but I did not. I'm sorry to say I did not. I was trying to figure out a way for that moment to go away and they would not probe me anymore because I didn't want to be like them in the way I talked, but I wanted them to accept me. I wanted to be a part of their friendship group. It mattered more than I can even explain. That's the feeling that I have. I remember what happened, but I also remember how I felt. And the reason I remember how I felt is because I spent a lot of time remembering that so I could help other teenagers and parents. Maybe when I grew up and became a real pastor. So anyway, the need for approval can be strong. It depends on the kid, on the teenager. But you are really blessed or cursed by the company you keep. For me, the more God conscious I became, Seventh grade was really tough. Eighth grade was not so bad. I started to kind of find myself and be comfortable with who I was. I saw tall kids on drugs, messed up. Skinny kids, fat kids, rich kids, poor kids. I realized that you're only completing Christ, that I was just who I was and trying to learn to accept myself. Short, Pentecostal, the only Pentecostal in my elementary school or junior high school as far as I knew. So I felt very conspicuous. You know, all the little names that people call short people. And, you know, I should have filed a lawsuit, but I didn't. I just kind of <laughs> dealt with it the best I could. But that kind of figuring that out was not overnight. It wasn't one trip to the altar. It was a process of God helping me and having parents and church and all of that support that helped me. And, and that, to that idea that I just spoke about, I preached the message called X equals God on uh, September the 3rd, 2017. It is archived and it's an old youth message that I felt to preach through the years to help people deal with the lack of wholeness. We are complete in him. We are not complete without him, no matter whether you're a nine or a one on that scale of one to 10, no one is complete without Jesus Christ. God began to prepare me. I didn't know it, but I think he started preparing me for youth ministry when I was a young teenager, and I started, started observing my friends and seeing my reaction to them. The effect of peer pressure for me was very real, very powerful. In spite of great parents, a healthy home, a strong church, good godly friends, the pressure was real. And, you know, I was not a terrible kid, but I can just tell you I struggled to resist that because I felt it. And maybe your teenagers never will. And if they don't, wonderful. If they do, help guide them through that. I was keenly aware of the opinions of my peers. Amen. Now, many teenagers will internally hold on to the values that their parents have taught them and they embrace, but they're, they're, they identify with their peer group's feelings and dress and behaviors very often. Uh, when I taught youth ministries at Jackson College of Ministries, uh, one year I decided that on the first day of class, I would make an assignment. So I made this assignment. You, you may have heard me teach about this before, but I said, uh, here's what I want you to do. These are all senior 
Bible college students. They're all in their 20s, early 20s. And I said, I want you to go between now and the next class. I think it was Monday, Wednesday. And I want you to write about a time when you were humiliated, embarrassed, when you failed, did something really dumb, or you were ridiculed. I want you to write a paper about that. So I made the assignment, came back the next class period, and this innocently happened. I said, okay, everybody did their assignment. I wanna ask for a volunteer of someone, I think there are about 25 to 30 seniors in that class, that would just read your paper to the class. No takers. No one. And, and it, and it kind of took me back. It surprised me. And I, and I said, whoa, what in the world is going on here? And so I started asking questions. And what came out of that was we realized that the pain of humiliation that might have happened five, seven years ago was still so real that they didn't want to talk about it to their peer group, senior Bible college students, in a class on youth ministries. And I feel like there are a lot of people that go through their entire life hobbling around emotionally because they never became complete in Christ. They never dealt with humiliation or shame or rejection or whatever might have happened, failure. So we worked our way through that, but it was a big learning experience for me as a teacher. Now, somewhere in these adolescent years, there is a quest for independence. It varies with the child. Uh, becoming his or her own person becomes a conscious or unconscious quest. So they may push back on you, ask why they have to be in at a certain time, why they can't go with that friend or go to that place. That is not always fun, but that's pretty normal. And if you know it's somewhat normal, then you can deal with it. Now, this quest for independence, it peaks just after they have the money in their pocket and the keys to the car. And it goes away when the car is out of gas and when they don't have any money. And now they come back to you again and they've humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. They need you now. So it's a little bit of a tug of war, a little bit of trial and error on the part of that teenager and parent. You know, they're pushing out the boundaries and then backing up. And there's not a push-button answer for this, but a lot of patients love understanding and knowing when to be strong and when to talk about the decisions. In this quest for independence, they might get offended when you pro ask probing questions about their life. Like, who are you to ask me about my friends? That girl or guy, you know, that person that I like of the opposite sex, the music I'm listening to, the media I'm watching, the games I'm playing, the activities I'm involved in, the time you want us to be in every night. So uh, this is important for everyone to know that it does not matter who you are, how old you are, whether you're a teenager or you're an adult, everyone needs to be accountable. You need to learn to be accountable. And that means right now you're accountable to your parents. And if you have these, these challenges, childhood, what I taught about last week, early adolescence, then don't be intimidated, right? When someone who is accountable to you says, well, you don't trust me. Well, I love my grandkids. They're all pretty young. I'm not giving them the keys to the car. I'm not giving them a loaded gun without supervision. It's not trust. It's maturity, understanding, 
and trust. I think in marriage, for example, trust is a gift. If it's violated, it has to be earned. But in the teenage years, trustworthiness and responsibility has to be earned. It's not just like a blank check or a credit card with no limit. You've got to prove that you're responsible before you're going to get more trust. And parents need to know that you're in charge, but don't wait till they're 18 to start talking about this. All right. I looked at several books on adolescence again. There's an older book by Bruce Naramore. I bought two books yesterday, books on Kindle. And uh, he lists chapter titles for teenagers. So this is just to let you know, here's an expert. A New Beginning, What's Happening to My Body, Awakening Sexuality, Fluctuating Moods, Peer Pressure, The Drive for Independence, and I've Got to Find Myself, This Quest for Identity, Who Am I, What Am I Supposed to Do With My Life? I really don't have a lot about that in my notes tonight, but for me, senior high, trying to find the will of God for my life was a, was a quest. It was not overnight. Dobson writes about this, the secret of self-esteem. Everybody's doing it, peer pressure. Something crazy is happening to my body. I think I've fallen in love in a notion called emotion. I bought a book called A Parent's Guide to Understanding the Teenage Brain. It's a Christian book by Group Publishing. And I bought another book that I didn't uh, actually list here. I was thinking I did. So in these years, remember when they're young, the parenting style is authoritative. You're the boss. But in these years, the parenting style, I believe, should be guidance. But it isn't like a switch that you flip. It isn't overnight. It's trust. It's trial and error. It's them growing. And I've already mentioned this earlier in my notes, but this is where I guide them. I want to guide them to spiritual encounters. They desire experiences. I want them to have spiritual experiences. And for me, going to camps, going to church, 16 years old for me, I've mentioned it through the years, was a come to Jesus decision for me. It was not a call to preach but it was a call to walk with God. And I made some major changes in prayer and fasting and Bible reading. I didn't know what that was, where that was going. It wasn't a call to be the pastor at Atlanta West, but I felt Jesus Christ calling me into a relationship with him. So you need to encourage those spiritual experiences and then reinforce them after they happen. I believe that in the teenage years, you need to give reasons. When they're little, you may or may not give a reason. Don't go out in the road. We know why. We don't want them to go out in the road. You can say, I don't want you to be killed. But in teenage years, this is not time to me when I'm trying to prove that I'm the king of my castle, I'm the boss, and I'm going to hold you under my thumb. I want my children to grow up to make wise decisions. I want my children to grow up to be a functioning adult. And so if they're going to do that, they need to have understanding. And remember, their mind is developing, so they're now asking why. And it shouldn't be 90% of the time you're saying, I told you so. When I'm the parent, you're not. If that's 90% of the answers you give your teenager, I think that's a mistake. That's my opinion, but I have good reason to back that up. They're asking an intelligent why. 
and you need to have an answer. Now, there are those times, they, in my opinion, they should be rare. When you say, you know what? I always try to give a reason. But, but all I can tell you right now is I've got, a, I've got a feeling. I don't feel good about this. And I'm, I'm saying no. I'm just telling you no. But if that's 90% of the time, that's probably not helping them mature and have a basis for making good decisions. And it's probably not going over very well either. It sounds like a cop-out to me right now. So I think it might to your kids too. When you're challenged with those questions, then be ready. You know, the Bible says that you should be ready to give an answer to people who ask about your faith. Well, I think parents need to be able to give an answer for our faith, for the decisions that we make, for the way we lead our homes, for the rules we make in our families. I believe as a kid who had a dad and mom, but especially my dad who exemplified this next point, that as a parent of teenagers, you need to pray to God to give you lots of patience. Thanks to my mom and dad, I've said this before, often on here and there, but you have to do the right thing until it works. You know, you say, well, I tried this and it didn't work. Well, was it the right thing? Don't change your approach. If you're doing the right thing, do that again. If you're doing something that's wrong, quit. Stop right now. But if you're doing the right thing, it's, that doesn't mean that tomorrow your adolescent is going to just embrace that immediately. Keep working on it and be patient. Don't be weary in well-doing. Remember that training is different from teaching. It's a process. You can learn an academic lesson and pass a test, but that doesn't mean you have the principles to put that into practice in your life. So I want them to know principles, a basis for making decisions. In our church, we teach standards, but we give, this is how we roll it out. What's the biblical principle? Is there a biblical principle for this? What is that principle? That's what I want to know. What does the Bible say? And then I have a personal conviction to live by that principle. And then it plays out in many ways. It's applied to our life in many, many ways. The Bible would be this thick if it addressed everything that would happen in 2,000 years or 4,000 years or 6,000 years. But it gives us principles and we should give our kids principles. I was not an evil teenager, but I had a lot of strong opinions. I don't know how my parents raised four kids who are all leaders, who are super strong in their personalities, and I confess that I had a sharp tongue. And I, at times, was a smart aleck. And my dad could have knocked me into the middle of next week anytime he wanted to. My dad was a very strong man who worked hard as a carpenter. I, wrote, I spoke about this in a message it's been a while, 2014, called My Dad, My Boys, and Me. And it's an emotional message to me because my dad was so patient with me. And I wrote him a letter in Bible college and apologized to him and talked to my dad through the years and asked him uh, to forgive me for being a smart aleck at times to him and uh, not being as respectful as I felt in my heart. I believe in these years you should guide in choosing friends. You are blessed or cursed by the company you keep. I could talk a lot about dating here, but probably a lot of dating happens way too young. Our youth pastor, Brother Joel, teaches his students back there, 18. Now that he has two daughters, he's moved it up to 28. But, you know, 
He can do whatever he wants, you know, good luck. Well, not luck, but you know what I mean. In the Bible, there was not dating, there was courtship, parents arranged marriages, which is the greatest idea ever. But guide them, guide them in dating, guide them in friendships. Brother Joel said this, and I thought it was very good. I asked him today about that age. I wanted to verify it. My notes say 17. Dating creates too much of a distraction from developing friendships, from education, from church and ministry. Early dating, early dating. It can set them up for failure with the natural progression of romance. Affection always develops into physical desire as God has designed us. If they're not ready biblically to act on those desires, it's a setup for failure, frustration, and temptation. Well said, Brother Joel. Thank you for the input of our youth pastor who teaches our kids every Wednesday night sound principles on a three-year curriculum, and I appreciate that. The Bible said that marriage is honorable in all. But outside of marriage, there's behaviors that are condemned. Sexual relationships outside of marriage. So we want to help our kids grow into maturity before they're married and before they're involved with someone else in a sexual relationship. Amen. Um, so all this about friendship is very important. I heard a story about a teenager. He's with a group of friends. They were in a car they committed a crime. He, along with his friends, was arrested. When he appeared before the judge, he explained to the judge that he was not guilty. I am not guilty. And the judge said to that young man, young man, if you sleep with dogs, you get fleas. You're blessed or cursed by the company you keep. My sister and I observed this when we were youth campers in the Florida district in our later teenage years. Monday of youth camp, kids from all over the Florida district come to Ocala to the campgrounds. They don't even know each other. And in a single day, by evening, there's these friendship groups forming. I worked in a Bible college for, you know, part-time 10 years. I watched these groups forming. Here's what I know. Spirits attract. Your kid may not be the bad kid. Your child, your adolescent, your teenager may not be the bad kid, but if they're drawn to the wrong person, you just have to realize that evil communications corrupt good manners. That's the King James, that you're going to be messed up if you have the wrong friends. So spirits attract. And if they're attracted to bad people, that's not a good sign. If they're befriending them, bringing them to God, that's different, but be very careful. I would like to encourage you to become a friend of your teenager. You know, a lot of communication that happens in a home is official parent-child communication. I'm the parent, you're the kid, do this, do that, stop, go, jump, jump, hop, skip, take a bath, clean up your room, do your homework, etc. And if you're not careful, the majority of your communication is authoritative down, parent-to-child, parent-to-teenager. It's instructive. I've told you before, my dad had a dad that walked out of their life. I just preached in Norfolk, I mean, not Norfolk, Richmond, Virginia, but told the story of my dad growing up in Norfolk, Virginia, his dad working in the shipyard and all of that. Um, my dad, I was the oldest of four kids, and my three brothers, Darren and David shared a bunk bed, and I had my own twin bed all in the same room that was really small. 
not complaining. We just, that's a small house, 900 square feet. My dad built a Florida room, which is a den most places, and had its own bathroom. And then I got a closet when I was a teenager and slept on a hide-a-bed in the living room. So don't feel sorry for me at all because that's just the way it was. But my dad would come in and he'd sit on the end of my bed and we would just talk. We just talk. It wasn't about, now, Daryl, tomorrow, blah, 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 you need to do this, you need to do that. You know, are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Or, you know, we just talk. And my dad shared some of his experiences of growing up that really helped me understand my dad. His childhood talked about things that were not official parent-child communication. And I know you can't confuse the role. You're the parent. You're, you know, you're not the buddy. But in my older teenage years, my dad became my friend. And my dad built a bridge to me that helped me understand him. As a parent, you should gradually teach responsibility. There's a verse on the screen, Lamentations 3.27. It is good for a man to, that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, this is an intriguing verse stuck in Lamentations, just there in an odd place it may seem. But I like what Jeremiah said in Lamentations about it is good for a young person to have responsibility. You get the translation? It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. A yoke was something that held you to plow a field and do work and kept you in line. That's what a yoke did. And the Lord said in Jeremiah 3.27 that it is good for a young person to have responsibility. I know it's different, but you know, everybody that I knew when we turned 16, we got a driver's license, we got a job. We had a responsibility. And regardless of how you do that in your family, I just want to just want to really help you that teenagers need responsibilities. They need chores, tasks. They need expectations. And it is good, the Bible said, to bear the yoke in your youth. Now, I taught back in June 15th and 22nd of this year about making wise decisions. And if you're going to gradually increase responsibility, you want to give them a basis for making decisions. It's so very important. Just having a birthday doesn't make you more wise. I know people who have had a lot of birthdays. A lot of birthdays. And they're maybe not as wise as some younger people I know who spent a lot of times in the book of Proverbs and prayed to God to give them wisdom. And they're very wise by reason of exercising their, you know, to, to, their senses to discern good and evil by Bible study, but wisdom is accumulated. The, the word of wisdom is not the same as accumulated wisdom. So I want, to, I want them to grow. Now I have a graph we'll put up on the screen here. Uh, I'm gonna actually turn around. You're not supposed to do this. But this, this graph is on authority and guidance. So it doesn't go to zero on either end. But it's just to give you an idea that over a period of time, and I'm just saying from 12 to 20, that authority is gradually diminishing and guidance is gradually increasing. So it's a process. It takes time, but you should really work on that. I've often uh, described the difference in parenting younger children and teenagers like this. This is a rocket, right? And a rocket is gonna blast off and it takes some really powerful force for that rocket to overcome Gravity is subjected to four forces, weight, thrust, aerodynamic forces like lift and drag, and it takes a lot to get the rocket off the launch pad. 
the Falcon 9 version 1.1, liquid fuel, nine Merlin engines, SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket generates 1.7 million pounds of thrust at sea level. That's how I see getting a kid from zero to 12. Authority, power, that's right, see? But then once that spaceship, and I love to talk about the space shuttle back in the days, changed my illustration, updated it to this. My space shuttle, I think, was 2011. In the teenage years, I see it more as guidance and where it's less power and authority and more giving direction. In a spacecraft, there's propulsion, but there's also guidance. And, and I learned this, it's a gimbaled thrust for navigation. These rockets can move. Not all of them do, but they can bend. They can, they can pivot and they can give direction. And this is how I see parenting through the teenage years. Instead of you forcing them into adulthood, you're guiding them into adulthood. You're steering them. It's not overnight. Don't miss the point that it happens over a period of time. The exhaust nozzle of the rocket can be swiveled from side to side, and the resultant change of thrust is a change of direction. We want to be able to fire a rocket and change the direction of our kids and guide them as they move toward their adult years. There are some mistakes that I've seen parents make in these years, and that's where parents have total control over their kids until they're adults. Brother Jury mentioned it the other day. I talked about it last week briefly, where parents rule with a rod of iron until their kids turn 18, then they turn them loose. I saw it happen with two brothers in my, the youth group that I youth pastored, where their father was military, and they, he treated them like a drill sergeant, sort of. Just a lot of control. And then at 18, he said, okay, you're adults. Have a good life, sort of like that. But there was no process. There was no learning. There was no give and take. There was no explanation. It was just, bam, I'm the boss and you're not. Jim Sleva, one of my good friends who works at Indiana Bible Colleges, one of my heroes actually, who helped me in my early days of youth ministry. He worked in a juvenile detention center. And he said, those boys were so afraid of what they were going to do when they got out. Because every decision was made for them when they got up, what they did, when they went to bed. Every decision was made for them. They didn't have a basis for how to function in a real world when they got out because there was no process. We need a process that helps our young people grow. I want to show this graph again just to leave it up there. And if you don't mind, please stand. These messages last week and this week have been a little more lengthy but I wanted to try to get through this material. I would like to encourage parents of teenagers to get good resources, educate yourself, beware of finding resources that are not biblically based. I was reading reviews of a couple of the books that I looked at, and one says, one star, because this is written from a biblical basis. I don't care that it was written by a Christian, but there's too much Bible stuff in here or something like that. Like, okay, that's the book I want. <laughs> I want a book about parenting based on the Bible, not secular humanism. Amen. If you have a moment, you'd like to come to the altar, you're welcome to come now. If you need to go, I totally understand that. But I want us to just pray. If you're not a parent of teenagers or a parent of soon-to-be teenagers, and I think we all know that life passes us by so quickly, and we need a lot of wisdom, we need a lot of understanding, 
We need the Lord to help us practice His Word in our families. So we're just going to pray. If you have a special need of prayer, we'll pray with you tonight. But let's just tell, we're not going to sing. We're just going to play and we're going to pray. And then we're going to go do our best to live out the principles of the Word of God. Lord, I pray right now for the amazing people that are part of our church family. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we have come to you and we have come to your word. And we have come to an understanding, Lord, that is incomplete, that we're trying to grow. We're trying to learn. We're trying to have understanding. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom when dealing with people at all seasons of life and all backgrounds of life. For, Lord, we have adults that we minister to, that we live with, that we help, who are stuck in a protracted childhood, Lord, emotionally. We have people, Lord, that have been hurt in life. They've been abused, perhaps violated, Lord, and they've got struggles that we cannot comprehend. I pray that you would give us wisdom, Lord, to help them. And I pray that the power of the Holy Ghost would minister, Lord, in our families. I pray, Lord God, that when we have done our very best, that you would come alongside of us. Give us insights and understanding, Lord. I pray that you would help us with our children and our grandchildren, Lord. I know you love them more than we do. And I pray that there would be spiritual encounters, Lord, that would revolutionize their life. I pray in Jesus' name now, God, that you would help us. I pray, Lord, for those of us that are at a season of life where we've raised our families, Lord, and now we're mentors and friends of people who are raising their children. Help us, God, have wisdom, Lord, not to say too much, but to have a word fitly spoken, God, when we can give some guidance to parents who are struggling with children in their childhood years or in their teenage years. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in Jesus' name.